How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, this is a, like, banner day for Mike Leslie in Context because I have been nagging Dr. John Ankerberg for conservatively 14 years to, <laughs> to be on a program. Now, when I was at the Chicago Moody Bible Institute, you came up for two days and you and I had a lot of fun right. when the Da Vinci Code book and movie were dropping right. and we did a little book on that together. Yeah, but you were hot on that. Well, mm-hmm. But since then, uh, I mean, you don't even return my phone calls. I mean, you know. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I've done programs with you and Johnny. You have. And, I'm just... and I'll tell you what, you guys are terrific. You well, have knock the ball over the park and i'm telling you that i get requests from all over the world for your program so i i still play it and even now i've thought about playing it again probably maybe this fall with this coronavirus going up you know it comes right into play you have been a super super kind to me personally to so many of your guests and there are some believe it or not that do not know who John Ankerberg is the John Ankerberg show began technically in 1980 on one market is that correct that's correct. We started in Kansas City, then moved it to Chicago, and then we moved it to, oh, then I, CBN was just coming up, Pat Robertson's network. And so I went on there. And then from there, we went to Philadelphia and Boston and spread out all over the place. And all of a sudden, it just it just took off like a rocket. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I had no studio, no cameras, no staff. And the Lord changed that in all in one week. Dr. John Ankerberg is a graduate of the University of Illinois in Chicago. He holds three advanced degrees, including a Master of Arts of Church History and Philosophy of Christian Thought. He holds a Master of Divinity with honors from the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a doctorate from Luther Rice Seminary. He has spoken in more than 78, I'm going to round that to almost 100 American universities. He has held innumerable conferences around the world, including Africa, Asia, Latin America, and recently found a, a phenomenal interest and passion for the country of India, which we'll talk about some. He and his yeah. wife, Darlene, live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. John is, and I know, I know you've been compared to this, and only people that are like as old as you and me will know what I mean. Right. But who was the white-headed run around the audience with the microphone guy? <laughs> Married to Marlo ago. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue show. Yeah, it's the Phil Donahue show for those of us that are over, what, probably yep. at least 55. He, he had this very fascinating format and. At some point in your television ministry slash career, you were doing something similar with studio audiences. And here was a believer in Christ bringing people on set who had very different views about the Bible, the world philosophy. And it was not a hostile environment, but a very precise, well-thought, measured interview with some of these people. And we'll give folks in the show notes links to the John Ankerberg show. You don't even need the link. Just 
put John Ankerberg show in your search engine and you will find it immediately. Thousands of programs. And I have been arguing with John now, literally for about four years that somehow to help him in a small way, he didn't need my help, but to, this content is so rich in the people that he has had on his programs. I, I don't think there's anyone like you, John. I, I mean, 2 billion plus potential viewers will tune in. You're in how many languages now? We are broadcasting, I believe, in 11 languages, and we're doing our discipleship program in 13 languages, and we're trying to do more. But yeah, we're in uh, Russia, all across all 11 time zones of Russia. As you said, we went into India, and we're now in Tamil, Hindi, Telugu, plus English. You know, the largest speaking English country in the world is India. Mm-hmm. They have 666 million people that can speak English. Okay, give, it, give, give our folks a, an index. How many people in America? 300, about 30 million that we have in this country. And, and how many in India? Oh, they have a billion three. They're going toward a billion four. They will be the largest country in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a little trade war going on between India and China right now, so it slows down the technology. But we... You know, when you talk about what the Ankerberg Show is, I'll tell you a little secret. I never intended to do television. I was speaking on the university campuses with InterVarsity that I started at the University of Illinois, and it kept on growing, and the crowds kept growing. And then I went to Trinity Divinity School because I thought, well, I need to get some education here to answer the questions of all these college kids. I'd say, if you listen to me for an hour, I'll answer your questions for an hour afterwards. And when you're at University of Chicago and they're all sitting on the floor, not on the chairs, it gets to be a rugged crowd. Or if you're at University of Minnesota or if you're up at Michigan State, it got to be fun. And a lot of our best meetings happened at midnight because that's when the kids were coming in. And, you know, I just I thought I have to learn more. So that's where God really said, you know, you need to start. I figured if I got all A's, then you know, nobody else would get a big a grade higher than I could. So I should be able to answer most of the questions. And so... Uh, How'd that work out? As, yeah, all of that. To, well, listen, when I was in high school, I was a C student, you know. I used to sit next to the queen of our high school that I really liked. And I was a freshman. She was a senior. And she was really, really smart. And she liked me. My Spanish teacher told my mother one time, she says, I know that your son is a Christian because... He gets all these poor grades on a Spanish test, and his uh, the queen of the high school sitting next to him, he doesn't copy because she gets straight A's. So, <laughs> you know, uh, something changed. God uh. gave me a desire to learn, and then I got into a good school. And this is when Trinity was trying to become the Harvard of the Midwest, and so um, they were trying to bring in some of the top scholars. So we had John Gerstner and Stott came in and, you know, we had some of the best Greek teachers. Norm Geisler was coming up. He was going to Loyola for his PhD at that time. Some of my roommates were, uh, well, Ravi Zacharias was one of them. And the philosopher, William Lane Craig, he was sitting on the other side of the room. And, you know, so we had all those kinds of people there. And I just remember you know, I was traveling at the same time. So I had Walter Kaiser, who was the dean of the school at that time. 
And I'd have him register. I'd call him, I'm, hey, I'm in Jamaica or I'm in Africa and today's registration. Can you go in there and just kind of move my stuff around and register for me? <laughs> and he did. And I would come back and it would be three weeks that I had missed already. So I, my nightmare is coming into school. And this actually happened one time. And that's why my, my nightmare keeps going on. I came into school. And it's the first time I came into this class. And what I usually looked for was all the A students, guys that could really write notes. And I would get three of them and I'd pay them. And I said, look, I'm going to be gone a lot of the time and you're going to write the notes and I'll pay you for the notes and I'll buy the book somewhere at the end of the semester. I'll read the book and I'll take the exam. Well, I came in this one day, the first day, and the teacher opened up by saying, all right, put your books on the floor and uh, I'm going to give out the midterm exams. I didn't even know what the course was. Oh boy! And so all I did was, I'm sorry, I haven't been here. I'll catch up. So, you know, to keep my average up, I told the guy I'll have to do some extra work, but I was lucky to eke out a B minus on that baby. But it, it was an interesting time of learning. Plus a lot of those guys like, oh, Geisler, you know, became a guest on my program. Eventually, uh, Ravi Zacharias became a guest on my program. And I asked him, I said, hey, Ravi, I, you never asked a question in your whole life when I was sitting in class. I don't ever remember you asking a question. What was going on? Because you're, you're answering questions of the top guys in the world right now. And he says, I was too scared. Mm. And I, told, I asked Norm Geisler, I said, did you ever hear Ravi ask a question? He said, no. But Ravi carried around for the rest of his life, Geisler's book, which I've also got called Christian Apologetics that he wrote, which was a kind of a cut down version of his dissertation at Loyola. And he carried that around for the rest of his life. And it's one of my books too. Mm -hmm. They're all out of print. Mm -hmm. And Geisler said he could never, he could never reproduce that one again. But so we had, we had a lot of fun in those days. And I got to know those profs and like Gleason Archer was writing for Billy Graham's magazine. And I used to argue with him and I'd have him on the program and have him on the Kaiser and, and Kaiser on the program. We'd argue New Old Testament. And so how that happened was, you know, I was having all these university meetings, then got done with seminary and got married. And then I was going to go on for my Ph.D., and uh, I'll tell you the bias. I went to Northwestern and I applied to go to Northwestern because Northwestern is right next to Trinity. And so got in there, talked with the guy that was registering all the students. Mm-hmm. Well, just the guy that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the question he first question, he says, uh, he said, looked over my my grades, looked where I came from. He says, you got pretty good grades in, you know, trains a pretty good school. But I want to ask you this question. Are you ready to be broken? of your views if we present the evidence. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you're this evangelical Christian. Are you ready to be broken of your views if we can show you some different evidence? And I said, yeah, I guess I am ready to be broken. But I said, uh, I hope I have a chance to answer back and ask why and also respond to that. Well, he didn't like that. So I got mm. refused at Northwestern. Interesting. But I thought, man, oh, man. I was hearing stories like that down at University of Chicago as well, where evangelicals, they were stalling them on giving their PhD to them because mm-hmm. they just carried them on and the guys had to keep paying money. They'd already finished all the courses, finished their dissertation, and they just kept stalling them. So 
you know, our Christians up at the upper levels are having a tough time with some of these secular guys. But And this is, what, 20, 30 years ago? Well, this was this was just before starting the TV program, so 40 years ago. Yeah, and crazy. So the fact is, is how in the world did I get from doing the university campus and working with university to television? So I used to speak out at a conference for teenagers every summer, went six weeks at a time at a ranch, and they had the biggest Youth for Christ rally in the world in Kansas City at 2000 every Saturday night. So I used to speak there for six weeks at a throw. And I got to be almost family with Al Metzger and his family. Hmm. So one day we're sitting around the table and Al says, you know, I think I'm going to build a television station next year. We all laughed at him, came back the next year, he had the station up. (laughs) And he looked at me and he says, you need to do a television program. I said, I don't do television. I said, I speak on university campus to college kids. And he said, well, you need to create something. I said, no. Then my mother and father-in-law were in television. They were in the National Religious Broadcasters. And they said, you need to think about that because, you know, you can reach a lot of people via television. You want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You can go across all of America if you want. And at, at that time, we didn't know about these big networks. It was just kind of station by station by station kind of stuff, except for ABC, NBC, and CBS. So, you know, I thought about it. And finally, Metzger said, come on, do it. So I thought, I want to do what I'm doing on the college campus. I want to have non-Christians, and I want Christians to talk to non-Christians and just have a wide-open discussion and let people hear it, let the chips fall where they will. He said, I've never heard of that kind of program. I said, well, that's what I do. So I tried it with Christian kids. I said, you ask me the questions that non-Christians would ask, and they didn't even know what they were. So I wrote them out for them. And they couldn't even say them correctly. So I thought, this doesn't work. So my first big try at it was I invited the chairman of anthropology at Berkeley and one of the Christians that was in biology there that I came, asked them to come for a debate. So that was my first debate. Now, I was traveling and I was paying for this television program by doing meetings on the outside, churches, conferences, all this kind of stuff, doing the college campuses stuff. And then I'd fly from Chicago to Kansas City to do these meetings. So I'd stack them all together. So this one week I had this debate, five programs on creation evolution with the chairman of anthropology at Berkeley and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day I did the leaders of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I actually asked them to come in. They Mm -hmm. came in. And then the next day I had the Mormons and I had their leadership come in. And then I had the RLDS and then... I ended the week with a debate on abortion. That was the days when you could talk about it. So I I went back and found two guys. One, a guy that was doing abortions at KU Med Center, a doctor, and then a lawyer for the ACLU. And then Joe Scheidler was just coming up. Anybody know that Mm -hmm. name? That that Mm -hmm. rings a bell. And then Pat Truman was doing the brief before the Supreme Court in terms of unborn children in the womb. So those were my debate contestants. So I'm in the middle. I got two and two on both sides, and I I said, okay, let me start this. And I should have really just had a gun since I go. And (laughs) because as soon as I asked the question, they started just firing off at each other, and it was just kind of interrupting them to keep the thing on schedule. And I thought, you know, this is kind of fun. I like this. Mm. And I found out the audience liked it, 
So I thought, well, let's take a chance and take this to Chicago. And Chicago had a Christian television program at that time, the Christian station that went all across the city. And they liked the program. So I was really surprised people liked this kind of apologetics emphasis. And then at that time, Pat Robertson was just starting to build CBN as a network. And I went down to see one of his guys and he picked me up in his old jalopy and he had just come to work there. And he said, I kind of like your program too. Why don't you come out about 1030 on Sunday night, which goes 1030, 938, 3730 right across the country. I said, well, that sounds good. So we started with this. Remember, I got no television studio. I've got nothing. I'm just using somebody else's equipment. And all of a sudden, you know, with no staff, letters start pouring in. People are giving money and, and I don't know what to do. Mm. And so um, I asked down in Kansas City, can I ask for money on this TV program? I don't know how to do it, but I'm just saying I got to pay bills here for airtime in all these cities. And the thing's starting to fly off the shelf here and, and I can't do it all. And he said, no, he says, uh, we're, we're not going to do that. Hmm. So I left there and my dad knew a guy that we had met as missionaries over in uh, Indonesia. And the fact is he had missionaries and his brother died. And his brother was a little older than he was. And so he got thinking he had this this missionary organization down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which I thought we used to pass through that from Chicago to South Florida. It was just like flying through Chattanooga. So I knew the mountain city and I knew the road, but that's all I knew about it. But Chattanooga, Tennessee was, I thought, you got to be kidding me, really? And so came down to Chattanooga and met the guy and he had a studio, a TV studio. And I said, look, I will run your staff. My dad (laughs) was real gentle with him. He said, He says, you know, if your brother died and he's younger than you and you've got this big organization, you need somebody to run it. The guy says, well, who can I get to do that? He says, my dad says, well, I got this kid I think that can can run it. And he said, it's my son. And so I came down, we hit it off. And so I ran his whole staff and I said, but I'll run your staff if I can use your television equipment to keep my program going. Nice. Yeah. And so that worked out. But in one year, 12 months, all of a sudden, remember they had those old computer machines where you had you flip the cards out with the holes sure, in them and so yeah, yeah, the old IBMs. They were really, yeah, the old IBMs were expensive as all get out. Well, he had them, except I became friends with like 110 of his staff, and they were just terrific. And But people were all just asking for stuff from our TV program and not from his mission organization. So after 12 months, I realized his staff was doing more stuff for me than for him. So I said, I told him, I said, look, I'm causing you a problem. I think that I ought to resign. And I said, you could hire two or three guys for what I'm doing. And the fact is you'd be really well off. He said, fine. And I left. So I had now no job. I had no staff. I had no buildings. I had no TV equipment and I'm on TV in on CBN and I'm on in Chicago. I'm on different stations. I was still on in Kansas city. I was on in Philadelphia. I was in Boston and different places. And I told the Lord, I said, now what do we do? So I asked the pastor of our church. I said, Hey, could you form some guys? I was new in the town. And so I said, can you form about 12 guys that might become the board? And I said, let me tell him what I've got in mind. So he did. And two of them were lawyers and a bunch of them were doctors. And they sat there and I said, guys, 
I need $20,000. It was Monday. I said, I need $20,000 by Friday to pay my airtime bill just to stay on for this week. I got no studio. I got no staff. I got no building. I need some help. Would you be willing to help me and become my board? And then we got to figure out the rest of this stuff. And I'll never forget one guy said, kid, you just keep doing what you're doing and don't worry about Friday and we'll get it taken care of. Mm. That was 20 grand, 20 grand, 40 years ago. It was a, a lot, lot of money. money. Sure. Yeah. So I said to him, I said, how are you going to do it? He says, well, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll tell you later. So hopefully it was legal. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he came back and he said, uh, he called me the next day and he says, I want to have a little lunch tomorrow. Do you have a little TV set and a little recorder and you could show the guys an illustration of what you do on TV? And I said, I suppose so. I had this little TV set and I had a little recorder, one of those old, old recorders. And I carried it in myself. It was down to the Mountain City Club in Chattanooga. And all these guys came in for this lunch into a private room. And the first guy that came and sat next to me, he looked at me and he says, what are we here for? He didn't even know why he was there. Okay. And I'll just tell you, he was Hugh McClellan that founded the Hugh McClellan oh, yeah, Foundation. Yeah. Okay. Great guy. And Hugh got asked for everything and he of did course. a tremendous job yeah. and so on. This is Hugh McClellan Sr. So he just says, you know, why are we here? I said, well, I'm here to show you a few clips and talk about a few things and hope you enjoy it. So we had the lunch and then the pastor introduced the lawyer who he was the lawyer for the McClellan Foundation. He said, I've invited you to today. I think we've got something going special here and I want you to hear this. And he turned it over to me and I said, guys, I've got this TV program where it's already going. People like it. And uh, it's an apologetics program. I explained what apologetics were. You know, it's defending the faith, presenting it to people that are non-Christians, answering their questions, bringing them to the Lord. That's what I want to do. And I said, let me give you an example. So I had... Thor Hall from Duke University, he had been coming through town and needed a program. So Thor Hall was in charge of the religious department and Norm Geisler was in town. So I thought, shoot, let's do, let's do a deal on inspiration and errancy of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we just, you know, winged that baby and Geisler cleaned his clock. And I thought, well, this, you know, this, this ought to be a good program. So I showed them a clip of this and, you know, I didn't know if they understood what was going on, but I showed them a clip of this. And when I was done telling them, you know, I need $20,000 by the end of the week and it's going to go on, you know, 20 times four, you get up a little bit of money and it's going to go on for the rest of this year. And I think it's growing. So after the meeting, the uh, human clone senior came up to me and he said, you got a, you got a proposal. I didn't have any proposal. I didn't know what a proposal was. And he said, <laughs> you got a proposal, a kind of a schedule for the year of what you're going to need financially. I said, sure, sure. I've got that. And so I went home and I found one of my friends that could type like mad. And I said, we're creating a 12 month proposal here because I got to present it tomorrow <laughs> to the McClellan board. So we did something for 350,000 bucks. Okay. Which was a ton of money. I thought you got to be kidding me. So I went into the, the McClellan Foundation, didn't even have a chance to get a haircut, okay? So I, I looked like, you know, back there in the 60s, man, you had long hair. And so I came in, and here's all of these dressed-up business people. And Hugh McClellan Sr. said, I like this young man. 
here's his proposal it's for $350,000. I'd like you to pass it. All in favor, say aye. And they said, aye. <laughs> and he says, you've got $350,000. And the board turned around and says, but you've got to become his board member for the next 12 months. Ooh. And so I walked out of there and we had $350,000 in one shot. And this was in a, you know, this is like the third day before I got, I had quit my other job. Mm -hmm. And, and now I still had no equipment, no place to go. And uh, good old Kay Arthur, she had a studio and they actually knew how to work with satellite. And so we started there and I met some of their staff and we started having some uh, television production there and we would send it off to satellite and then we would take it on the road. I went to Kansas city. I went to, we did a bunch of stuff in Orlando. I had Muslims. This is back when we had freedom on the air. Okay. So I had top Muslims, the one from North America and the one from Canada came down and I had two Christian scholars that were debating them. And the place was jammed with Muslims. And every time I took a break for television, the Muslims would go out in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Orlando and they would all put their prayer blankets down and they would pray. Wow. Then they would get up off that. They would come on back in. So I had four bodyguards around me. Okay. And during the deal, somebody said something. I think one of the Muslim guys was talking about Muhammad. And the fact is the other guy who was a Muslim himself, but it was a Christian, started talking about what his daughter had said. And all of a sudden, the whole place stands up and is starting to rush the platform and they're coming toward me. And I shouted down the whole crowd and I said, hang on, hang on. We'll give everybody a chance to, to talk here. And thankfully they all backed off because it was, it was like we had 500 people there and, mm. and just a few, a few of us Christians, but my bodyguards were from the Olympics and they, they were big guys. So I was protected, but those were fun programs to do. Although <laughs> at that time, at that time, that was before 9-11. Yeah. And when I played it across the country, nobody cared about Islam. Yeah. After 9-11, after I did it, and the whole world wanted to take it. Yeah. 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 But that's how we got into TV and started. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here because I got eight questions I want. You, you already answered a couple of them, but I, I yeah. want to answer a couple of these. Get John Ankerberg's insights on these. When you think back on all this, I and mean, you can go back even to your upbringing, What's been the single greatest spiritual challenge in your life? The spiritual challenge in my life was when I was in high school, starting high school, okay? My dad, he, Tory Johnson was a preacher at Midwest Bible Church in Chicago. Dad worked at Bethel Baptist Church. Billy Graham was out there in Western Springs. And Billy pulled all those guys in and started this little organization called Youth for Christ. And they traveled across the world and they set up rallies all across the United States. So my dad, going from the pulpit to being an evangelist, which he was at heart, and Graham was the same and Tory Johnson was the same. They went, Merv Rosell and those kind of guys, people that don't know them, they were great preachers. And, you know, they set up the Europe, they set up Scandinavian countries, Europe and so on. And... They had fantastic meetings, just fantastic meetings, and it grew like mad. And then Dad became the vice president of the Eastern United States for Youth for Christ and set up every rally from, you know, Chicago all the way to New York and down. And we used to have conferences at Ocean City every summer. And, and as a kid, you know, I knew he had two, 3,000 high school kids up mm -hmm. the front. And, 
and I'd be down on the beach having a good time. But the fact is, we go to Wino Lake every year. But, you know, so I heard about this stuff, and yet there was a summer when, you know, between eighth grade and coming into high school, I went to a teen camp, and my uncle was funny as a wretch. He was like you, Michael. The fact is he could preach and tell jokes at the same time, so you'd really listen to him. And the thing is, is that he talked about, will you be a witness for Jesus Christ? Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Mm. And for some reason, God got to my heart. Mm. So I went out on the ball diamond. I was just coming into high school. I was basically small at that time. I was a fighter, but the fact is I was small. I talked to some of my friends later, and they said, you know, you never, you just fought on everything. You never wanted to lose a baseball. You never wanted to lose a mm. tetherball. You never wanted to lose on anything. You had to always win. I said, well, I don't remember that. Said, yeah, that, that's what that's what you were. And so anyway, I'm sitting out in the ball diamond. I went out in the ball diamond and I was I was a good ball player too. I had a future. In fact, after I went through college, I was still playing ball. I'd play ball like three, four nights a week sometimes. And uh, the Cubs were going to come out and look at me. So I had all that kind of going. And But, you know, back in high school, starting high school, my folks left the city where I had all my friends and they moved to a new place out in Mount Prospect in Des Plaines. And the fact is, is that now I was in a new house going to a new school and I knew this coming up and it was a couple of weeks before this started. And here's God speaking to me saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a witness for me? And to me, that meant hmm. putting a Bible on top of all of my school books mm-hmm. so everybody could see it and identify yourself as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that was a fight that God and I had, Mm -hmm. and God won that one. And I remember that was the turning point for basically my whole ministry. In other words, when I gave in on that one, it was like saying, I'm dying to myself because, Lord, you know, what can a guy do that's going to be known as a Christian for the rest of his life? And so I gave in, went to school, carried a Bible. Everybody said, why are you carrying a Bible? And I had no answer. I said, well, I'm a Christian, you know, and uh, then they started asking these questions and I didn't know. So my standard answer was, I don't know, but I'll look it up and I'll tell you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I I did that. And first two years, I was learning how to answer questions. Third and fourth year, we had the largest high school Bible club in the city. We had like 400 kids coming and we led 120 of our friends to the Lord in high school. So I knew it, I knew it worked. But I had no idea of being a preacher, okay? I was still, you know, God just said, I want you to be a witness for me. I finally gave in. He did a lot of miracles. Along the way, some guy said, I think you got the gift of evangelism, which I mm-hmm. thought was a disease. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'd never, I never even heard about that. He says, I'm going to give you a test. I said, what's the test? He says, I'm going to put you in front of this uh, roller rink that's a non-Christian roller rink. And at halftime, they actually do let us speak to the people. I want you to speak. Then I'm going to put you in a church. I'm going to give you a hayride deal that you speak at that, a campfire type thing. And uh, he put me in five different situations, old people, young people, non-Christian people. And he says, just do your thing and let's see what happens. I didn't know what was going on, but I, I wanted people to come to know the Lord. So I would speak 5, 10, 15, whatever the time was. And I remember at the roller rink, when I'd ask people to accept the Lord, I'd say, just, you know, if you really want 
are serious about this and you would like to invite Christ in your life, stand to your feet. Well, they would jump up, you know, wow. off with roller skates on, wow. then go to a place and we'd have people pray with them. I did this at a hayride and I did this uh, in a church with regular people there. And every time people either raised their hand or got up and left and went and accepted the Lord. Huh. So I didn't think there's anything special about it. I came back and he said, <laughs> He said, I think, I think you've got the gift of evangelism. And I really, I was thinking, man, is something wrong with me? Or <laughs> and he says, no, this is, this is one of the gifts that God gives. And I think you've got it. Mm. And so, you know, giving into God on that ball diamond at night mm -hmm. all by myself, mm -hmm. where I was really struggling with it and I knew what it meant. There was a price to be paid and there was a price to be paid. But God worked out a whole lot of things. I had a lot of fun being a Christian with other Christian kids, and I led them. And still, the only way I became a preacher was when some of our speakers wouldn't show up. Then they'd say, well, hey, Ankerberg, you got to speak. It's your, it's your turn, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, I didn't have any big Bible verses. I'd just say a couple of things and give an invitation. Go People got it. saved. That's, there you have it. Okay, yeah, we, we so, got we got to do some of these lightning round, Doctor Ankerberg. Yeah, go uh, for it. So I know it's a cliche question, but people enjoy hearing the answer. A key verse or a favorite book for John? Well, you know, I thought about that, and the thing is that for me, Michael, it sounds crazy, but the fact is that my favorite verse is the Bible. I've mm -hmm. read it so many times that now. Whatever problem comes up, it's like, I got to go spend time with the Lord and read some of those mm -hmm. verses. So I know where they're at. But one that's stuck with me, and I've learned to share this with a lot of Christians, is a very simple one. They know the one in front, but they don't know the other one. And that is, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn mm. the world, mm -hmm. but that the world through him might be saved. And the reason that that became a cool verse for me was just the fact that even after becoming a Christian, you realize what Paul's saying in Romans 6 and 7, the fact is you still got this sinful nature and you have desires that come out of you and you have thoughts that come out of you and you've got motives that come out of you and you say, where in the world did that come from and why is it so strong and how do I get rid of it? And the fact you say, man, when I realize the holiness of God, and you know, you, you study the holiness of God, you say, man, I'm in big trouble. Mm -hmm. And these verses, they are terrific. And God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. And I thought, man, I need to be condemned because even though I'm a Christian, I'm doing stuff I shouldn't right. be doing. Right. You know, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no, no condemnation. condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm saying that's, that's terrific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then, you know, I got the ones that keep me from feeling guilty all the time. And then the fact is I've got the ones that keep me going. You know, going to all the world, preach the gospel was easy. Go and make disciples of all the nations. So that was my go sign. And along the way, I realized, you know, Jesus actually meant that. And someday I'm going to have to give an account to him. He's going to say, what'd you do with what I said? Mm. And then I looked around at the churches and I thought, you know, that's probably a good message for them too, because right. I don't see us doing a whole lot with some of these non-Christians. And that uh, in television, that's why we've gotten into a program where 
I learned there are 7,140 languages in the world. And a guy came in that I didn't know, but through circumstances, I got to know him. He came in and I said, what do you do? He, he didn't even answer the question. He says, how many people in the world right now have never even heard about Jesus? I said, I don't know. He says, there's 2.8 billion people. He said, how many languages are there in the world? I said, I haven't got the slightest idea. He just says, there's 7,140 languages in the world. He said, oh, by the way, how many of them do not have a Bible in their language? I said, I don't know. He says, there's 4,000 languages that have no Bible. I said, well, so how do those people operate? He says, they don't. And when I was a, a kid, I traveled with my dad because he kept on traveling. And this is one of the reasons I used to travel and hardly go to school. But the fact is, we went to Ethiopia one time and I was out there and I was sitting with a missionary and the missionary had a guy come up to him and the guy said to him, you know, I've become a Christian and I'd like to have a Bible. And I heard the missionary say these words, I'm sorry, sir, I'd love to give you a Bible in your language, but in your lifetime, we'll never have a Bible in your language to give to you. Sad. Yeah. So that's where I got involved with Faith Comes by Hearing and started directly trying to get audio Bibles. The translators at that time didn't have a lot of languages translated, but they're, they've set a goal for 2033 to have all the languages, those 4,000 languages that have nothing right now, to have a Bible or a portion of the Bible in every language in the world. 2033 is not that far away. And they got a big job to do. But the fact is that 75 to 85% of these people in these unreached people groups right now, if you gave them a printed Bible, they can't read their own language. And that's true even mm -hmm. of a lot of the people mm -hmm. that have languages we've got right now. But the fact is, is so you have to have somebody that goes and makes an audio recording and they had a special machine called a Proclaimer, which is kind of an audio player that's really tough. You can take it into the jungles, the desert, wherever you're going. And you can play it and you get the recording of the Bible in their language and you press the button and for the first time in their life, these people hear the Bible in their own language. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know anybody that's doing that. I want to help this person. And so about four or five years ago, I said, I'm going to do a TV program with you next week. You ready? He said, I'm ready. And I didn't know if Christians would support this thing. So I used our own tapes for the first two years in talking about this so we could pay for airtime all over the world. And then I thought, you know, this is obeying the Great Commission, going to all the world. I mean, how plain does it have to get? And so I said to people, look, we got 4,000 languages. We've got a ton of Bibles that have been just translated. And these guys have sent teams out into the field. They spend three months getting the, the natives to translate it into their own language. They bring it back and they put it together in New Mexico and put sound effects with it. And then they put it on the special machine. And then they go and they go into these unreached tribes and they give it to them. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I'd like you to help. And I'd like you to buy the proclaimers so we can send it over to these places. And so in four years, we've now got 4,042,524 people in listening groups sitting on the ground every week. So between now and Sunday, wherever you're at in the world, the fact is every week they meet and they listen to the Bible for a half an hour to an hour, and then they have a two-hour discussion about what they heard. Wow. Six months, that whole group goes through the entire New Testament. In, in a year, they go through the New Testament twice. Half of them, 
this is the statistics worldwide, half of them invite Christ into their life. Now, some of them, you're going to tribes where they have never heard about Jesus, okay? All of them get saved. And then they continue to listen, and they drop all of the idolatry. You know, mm-hmm, some of these mm-hmm. tr- tribes, they just live in adultery. They don't even know it's wrong. And so they say, hey, we can't sleep with the other guy's wife. So they stop that. They stop the drinking. They stop beating their wives, all this kind of stuff. They stop killing other people and ask for forgiveness from some of the people that they've hurt before. So we're seeing this happen. I'd like to get it up to five, six, seven, ten million 10 million people, if we can, in the days ahead, mm-hmm. as these, you know, Wycliffe and Seed Company and Pioneer and these guys get these translations out. Faith Comes By Hearing has got to send teams out to these places to get audio recording with the real accent. They bring it back in. They got a way of putting it all together, giving sound effects. They almost make it like a story. And when the people hear it, you can almost hear a pin drop and... And so like in Nigeria, where you got 100 million Christians in the south and you got 100 million Muslims in the north of the worst kind, you've got Boko Haram, you've got Al-Qaeda and you've got the Fulani and the Fulani got the president of Nigeria. Every sixth guy in Africa is from Nigeria. But the Christians, 100 million Christians in the south, they want to take the audio Bibles up to Al-Qaeda and, you know, the Fulani. And I'm just saying there's going to be a bloodbath in Nigeria and we're supplying the Bibles. Hmm. Last year, we had the people that were taking it in to the different countries that we had given. We're in Peru and the coronavirus is so tough, it's running out of people down there in Peru. But the fact is you've got the Amazon jungle, you've got the Andes mountains, you've got the beaches on the big cities. The fact is, is that there's so many people that are coming to know the Lord as a result of these programs that it's like God's doing his own thing. He took it away from us. Mm-hmm. We get the Bibles Sounds out there. Us, yeah. And he's, he's taking them to different villages. All right. Two, three books beyond Scripture that you've gone back to or were high watermarked for you. I liked when I first started, the fact is that I liked John Stott's book, Basic Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I formed my apologetics talk for college students with some of his stuff. I liked Norm's Geisler's book on philosophy that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Gary Habermas, who's the expert on the resurrection. I used to memorize his books and use them all the time. Walter Martin was one Mm -hmm. of my funniest guests that I ever had. Dear friend of yours. And, Mm -hmm. And I loved him. I did his funeral. I cried more at his funeral than I've cried at anybody else's mm-hmm. funeral because mm-hmm. we just had a great time. I mean, I love doing his programs. They were the funniest and, thing and ever. For, and for and for folks who don't know, uh, he, he was he kind of codified and indexed all the cults. Oh, he was an expert on the mm-hmm. cults, mm-hmm. and so you know. Then through the years, you know, you got guys like reading Johnny Erickson Tata's mm. to come and do your program, to listen to your sermons that you've done at the Cove, to listen to William Lane Craig and read his books and try to figure out what he's saying. <laughs> um, uh, I like, that. you know, all right. It's, that's, that's, it's really something. Give me one of the biggest lessons, not the only one, but one of the biggest lessons you've learned at this point in your life, John. 
learn to trust God because everything works with him and nothing works without him. Mm. Every time, the first probably 20 years of the TV ministry, we were always three, $400,000 behind at the end of the year, and I didn't know where it was coming from. So you lived with that tension all the time. And there were some times when you thought you'd have to fire staff and you have to cut it down, you'd have to cut stations. There were times when the guy that did Amway, he actually came in and bought up like 40 of the smaller television stations and put his own programs on there, knocked off all the gospel. And that was like Philadelphia and Boston and some key spots where we had huge crowds, including Chicago and stuff like that. So we lost about 30 stations and just overnight. Okay. So the support dropped and I had no way of getting to those people. So those kinds of challenges, when you don't know what to do, you learn you know, there's you know, nothing we, else to we, do. We work so hard in the flesh, and then it's like the Lord knocks all the props out, and he yep. says, okay, Michael, okay, John, let's see what you do now. <laughs> yeah. and, and the fact Are you going to trust me, or are you going to do it your way? The staff knows that when I really feel like we're in trouble, I say, we all got to get together and pray. And, you know, <laughs> there's some of them are sitting right here in the room, and, you know, it's, it, it's come to that. every other month. It's come to that, we're going to pray. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, it's gotten so bad. Okay, Lord. Help. Well, no, I'm, they know I'm with you. No, I'm with you. They know, and they get to see what happens because none of us would be here unless God did it. So God, you know, every night I tell God, look, you know, I'm putting out these requests. Nothing's going to happen unless you do it. And, you know, and, let me interrupt you. That For all of us, we have to be reminded of that. You know, he, yeah. he uses you in ways he'll never use me. He uses a stay-at-home mom caring with, you know, two or three little children in ways that, you know, we'll never see. And yet we work so hard at making it work our way. And if we would just rest and say, Lord, Sovereign, I got to trust you. It may not work out the way I envisioned it, but it's more important that I'm faithful and yep. rest in you, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is still great. Trust sure. in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And you have no idea what he's got coming down the yeah, line. You don't know the path. All right, we gotta, uh, we got to move. Yep. What's one thing that you'd long for every believer to know or to do? I would say the same thing, Michael, is every believer, you're going to be tested in some way. It's going to be a disease. It's going to be family. It's going to be money. It's going to be a job. It could be your church. It could be anything, okay? You and I, we've almost died a couple of times, so the fact is we're getting used to that. But you just, you just say, Lord, you know, as you're going under and you're seeing the lights go by and you don't know if you're coming out, the fact is... You just are at peace because you gave it to the Lord. Whether I'm here or there, it doesn't make any difference to the world. It makes a difference to God. Mm -hmm. And if I come back, then he's probably got something for me to do. So, you know, I think that's the way I'm going to feel going out is just, okay, this is the time the Lord says, stop. And you just trust him because he always brings you back, and when he brings you back, you say he shouldn't have done that. I've heard too many people say, you know, you know, I set the record on uh, a bunch of 
things <laughs> at the hospitals in Chattanooga. So years later, people, nurses have been looking at me and they said, so you're, you're the, the guy, guy. That, had, that had all those bypasses. <laughs> I've never seen anybody that's had more bypasses on their heart than you. I think I had 10. It, I think uh, people wonder, how did you have 10 when you don't have that many arteries? Well, there's a way of doing it. And well, I did Well, you know, it. the Grinch's heart grew big, so he needed lots of... <laughs> yeah, so I'm just saying... Uh, no, but if, your point taken, I, and I think, and just to you know, agree, 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 is, and, and I think even in Cindy's in my life, is you, know, you work so hard at X... And See, until- I, it, it really it really bothered me when you were the best at Moody Bible Institute. You were one of the best conference speakers we had. And I couldn't, you know, I would watch you and you come to the NRB. And the fact is you were three sheets to the wind because you were taking these pills to try and kill the pain. And I said, you got to do something about it. But what they had to do to you was murder. All right. We all have and- something. The point is we all have something. And it doesn't, you know, it's just like what some of your family has gone through and some of our close friends have gone through. Of course, we lost Robbie to back pain that was actually tumor. And it went quick. Yeah. yeah went um, quick. At the same time, you don't want to be maudlin and, nope. you know, going, well, you know, Eeyore about dying. But at the same time, this, this world is not our own. Our life is not our own. And trying to, re- and that to me is where the only place joy can come from. That's why you and I are so taken, so smitten by Johnny. Because here's a woman that's been in a wheelchair 54 years this year who lives with chronic pain, who's gone through two intensive breast cancer treatments, recurring, all kinds of other issues that aren't public. And that woman has a joy that you can't bottle. And you go, Lord, use this people. So even you and me. Greatest disappointment in your vocation, your ministry, how you look at you know what, what's gone on in life. Probably that I didn't know what I'm telling you, that you got to trust God. Mm. You know, you try and do things yourself and they don't work out and you hit a brick wall and you learn the hard way. And I think that's true of many Christians. Maybe they haven't been tested to the extent that we have, but the fact is they're going to be tested Mm -hmm. one way or another. And you've got to get to know God more intimately. He really does love you. He does care about you, and he can do more about your situation than you ever dreamed, okay? But you you don't know that going in, you know, and it bothers us that we haven't got it all figured out, but that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. God is God. He does stuff his own way. I would just say to every Christian that's living, listen, God means it when he says, I love you, mm-hmm. and I know where you're at. I know how you feel. And I'm going to be with you through this. Now, you don't know how it's coming out, but I'm telling you, a lot of times you're surprised that you actually come out of it and live. You know, and, it's interesting you mentioned that because from time to time, and I, you know, you, you, like me, learn to read an audience and can, you can say something that maybe was part of your script, maybe it was extemporaneous, and there's like a Paul in the room. Mm-hmm. And I found in the last eight, 10 years, John, when I talk about God loving you, I, I'll even dramatic pause speaker device god loves you and it's like the air is sucked out of the room and i'll say it three or four times and i'll remind them you know what prof hendrix always told me nothing you can do will ever make god love you more nothing you have ever done will make god love you less and you say that again and people just some will weep because you know we know we're despicable we know we're sinful we know we have issues that aren't 
in the way we wish they were, and yet Christ loves. Yeah. I think that the biggest problem Christians have is they have a hard time believing God loves them because they got so much guilt. Yeah. And that's that's why I'm saying, you know, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn you. That's a good but word. To save yeah. you. Yep. And the fact is he really does love you. Let him love you mm. and you'll be surprised how close you can become with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you get into problems, you will seek the Lord rather than a group of friends. Or, or some other prop, else. yeah. Okay, what's your greatest encouragement in life, ministry, Christian vocation? Well, the Lord comes first, but I think the second thing is the surprises that he brings that you weren't expecting, namely in sweet Christians that come into your life, that he brings into your life, that basically save your life. I mean, people that have you know, we need money on television, tons of it, to stay alive. And sometimes when it doesn't come in, and people right now with the COVID and all that, they're sweating it too. So they're kind of know what I'm talking about. They might be losing their company. They might be losing their store, their business, or so on. Listen, you got to trust God to give you an idea, or there might be somebody that'll come along and say, I want to lift the load. In my case, you know, I had Hugh McClellan that gave $350,000 all in one shot, and God arranged me to have Geisler talk to Thor Hall, and, mm. and you know, mm. we showed that tape. I had no idea about that. Oh, by the way, Thor Hall was a guy that got all of the, he went to the ACLU and got all of the time-release classes out of the schools in the South, and I found out Hugh McClellan was paying for that out of his own pocket. Goodness. Wow. So he was he was more mad at that guy than any guy I knew. But uh, I'm saying those are the kinds of surprises God brings in your life. And he will, again, you go back to the Lord. And then the fact is you can be an encouragement. And if, if you see brothers and sisters in your church that are having a tough time, put your arm around them or, or now during COVID, at least talk to them and say, Hey, I'm praying for you. I care about you. You're important to me. You always have been. And you'd be surprised how far that goes oh, with a lot goes of people. A long way. Yep, I have a thumbnail philosophy of ministry that's uh, glued in the front of my Bible. I, you know, I had to write a, a thirty-page one in seminary, and no one ever asked me to, you know, to read it. So I, I, I wrote what I call a thumbnail one. It's uh, five bullets, and one of them is everybody's underencouraged. And uh, oh, it's yes. it's just, and you're that, you know, to some, you're that to me. Okay, nine. If you could write an 18-year-old John Ankerberg, a letter, what would you tell him? Get to know God more intimately than you do and start to trust him. You don't, see, when you're young, you don't, you don't realize God's actually going to move around and do stuff. <laughs> and uh, he, he can move around. I just like the way you put that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just saying. God's going to move I, around I, and do stuff. Okay. That's, yeah. that's good theology, John. <laughs> Yeah, he just uh, he just can put you in places and order the events so that you just had no idea that that was going to happen. I mean, it was a complete blank. You didn't plan it. God planned it. He put you in the spot. You did your thing. I went to Roosevelt University. Okay, I was asked to speak at Roosevelt University. It's right across from the library from the Art Institute in Chicago. So it's right down on Michigan Avenue down there. Okay, Roosevelt University is made up of Jewish people and of African-Americans. 
And I always figured nobody smiled in that school. So I was asked to come and speak at that school. Okay. So I came in there back there at that time, they were having a black Panther meeting in the hall. So there's a guy that looked like Adolf Hitler up at the front talking just like Adolf Hitler. And this whole crowd was into it. So the hall was jammed with all these black students. And I walked through them into the room where I was at. And there was nobody in the room except my little band that we were supposed to play. And these three guys got saved out of the nightclub. And they said, you know, what are we supposed to do? I said, are you any good? And he says, yeah, I think we're good. I said, well, I need to do this deal at Roosevelt University. So you come on and talk and we'll just see what happens. And so came in there and time came for us to play. And the Black Panther meeting was still going on. Nothing was happening. And all of a sudden uh, I said, okay, guys, just play. And we had drums, steel guitar and electric organ. Okay. And, you know me being from a Christian church, little Swedish Christian church, never gone to these nightclubs and stuff. I didn't know anything. We had these speakers piled up to the ceiling and I sat down in front of one stack and the guy went one, two, three, hit it. And the noise that came out blew me right off that speaker and almost right over to the wall. (laughs) And they were terrific as a band. They broke up that entire black power meeting and all of those kids came into the meeting and a white kid was going to speak to all of them at the end. And that was me. And I thought, you've got to be kidding, God. I'm speaking to this crowd. What am I going to say to them? And when the music was done, then I went up to the front and I started to speak. And the guy that was sitting right in front of me was like like six nine. And he had he had chains wrapped around his neck and he had a, a black leather jacket with all kinds of tattoos and the whole thing. And he was right in front of me and he didn't look very happy. Mm. And so I presented the whole uh, apologetics was the thing that I had presented and talked about Christ and how he could change your life and all of this. And I came to the end, I said, if you want to invite Christ into your life while everybody's watching, I want you to stand to your feet right where you're at. And the room went quiet. And the first guy that stood was this big black guy. And he stood right in front of me. So I couldn't hardly see the crowd, but other people across the crowd started to stand. Okay. When that happened, I led that kid to the Lord, and other of those kids came to the Lord. When I saw that, I thought, God can do anything, Michael, okay? I didn't expect anything to happen. I was glad to get out of there alive, but the fact is God had plans, and he arranged it, and I didn't know what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question. What do you want your epitaph to say? He died telling people about Jesus. I want to never get tired of winning people to Christ. And I get more fun. In fact, this is the fun of my life, is to go into all these nations around the world where people have never heard the gospel. You know, along the Amazon River, there's a 100 tribes that civilization has not yet touched. Why? Because if you go into those tribes, they cut your head off. So that's a problem. But the fact is, we're supposed to bring the gospel to all those people. And we're bringing it to those people. We're bringing it to people in India. In India, you got 80% are Hindu of the 1.4 billion people. And 18% are Muslim and 2% are Christian. And we have mapped out all of India. And our goal is to go and reach every quadrant. And, oh, by the way, God's given us the biggest church in the world, who's my buddy is the pastor there. When I went, he said, you want to preach today? 
And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Why? Because he has 200,000 people coming to his morning service. Mm. So I didn't know what 200,000 people looked like. Just picture the Rose Bowl and then do it twice. That's what he's got. And the fact was, is that we were sitting in this kitchen. This kitchen was 10 by 10. And we were having tea. And I had never seen the auditorium. I didn't know where it was at. And all of a sudden, he says, I guess it's time for us to go out. So we took eight steps to a drawer that was next to where we were having tea. I opened the door, and there was 45,000 people looking at me, okay? And next to it, there's another building, about 10,000 people. And I could hardly see the people in the back row. That's how many people he had. And he did five services a day. He says, how many times do you want to preach? Well, it was 5.30, and he ended up at 10 o'clock at night, and then you went and you spoke to his leaders till midnight. I said, I think I only do three of them. I was a little tired. <laughs> and I'm saying, that to me is fun, okay? That's the joy of my life. I want to see people come to know Christ, and I also want to see them disciple. We've done a discipleship program that's going to go into all the languages that we can. we got 14 languages we've translated this in. We did 40 half hours with Ravi Zacharias' sister Mm -hmm. and his best friend. His best friend became a nuclear physicist, went up to uh, nuclear power in Canada. Then after they became a pastor, he was just as smart as Ravi. They stayed friends all their life. And Shamala, his sister, she was a stitch. She would, you know, she, when Ravi died, she uh, wrote a little blog and she said, you know, some people say when they sin that the devil made them do it. She says, when, uh, when I send, I would always say, Ravi made me do it. <laughs> and uh, the fact is, he was very persuasive with non-Christian students. But he says, before he got saved, he persuaded me to get into all kinds of evil. And we were, we were twins together that got into all kinds of evil and drove our parents nuts. Mm. So we weren't plaster Paris saints. We eventually became Christians. But the fact is, we grew up and we know how to do all kinds of things. But you know, I love winning people to the Lord. I love working with guys that have that kind of an outreach to go to the world. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, I know it makes me cry of guys that have given their life to this and have been killed in the most horrible way possible. And I'll save that for other broadcasts right now. Right now, mm-hmm. I won't tell you. Dr. John Ankerberg, The Ankerberg Show, John Ankerberg Theological Institute. You can find out all kinds of things about him, and we have not even got to the tip of the tip of the iceberg. My friend, what a treat to have you on the program and the broadcast, and love you. Appreciate you so much. You are uh, fighting fights that people don't often see, and we have so much in common, and the heroes in our lives, uh, Storm and Norm Geisler, and these guys that left a big footprint and and you're leaving a big footprint, John. So I pray that you continue to have joy and strength and health and take a break once in a while, Dr. Ankerberg, will you? If I do, I'll come to hear you at the Cove. (laughs) I love hearing you preach, Michael. Well, you're kind and you're a good encourager and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Thanks for today. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.